Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. I'm Eric Wolf, and I'll be your host today for episode 17 of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast. And joining me today is co-host Ashi Vale. Today, we'll be speaking with Rosetta Ferrari. Born and raised in London to Italian parents, Rosetta Ferrari spent her young life in and around the food industry, but chose to seek an alternative path. In her pursuit of a career in music, the food world kept finding its way back to her in the form of various jobs and opportunities, and eventually her position at a special interest holiday company required her to design and create bespoke itineraries for authentic Italian food tours, which run regularly throughout the year and often sell out at maximum capacity. Welcome, Rosetta. Hello. So it's a pleasure to meet you. And you. Good afternoon. In the preparation for our podcast today, I was, I was looking at uh, some materials about you and some of the things that you've done. And one thing that I noticed is that you are a thinker. You like to understand what makes people do things, how they feel once they've done it, and, and really to see how other people react. Would you, would you agree that you're a thinker? Yes, uh, very much so, probably too much in the sense that uh, in thinking too much and finding reasons for things, I end up forgiving everything. So <laughs> nothing is ever wrong in my mind, which I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, that's, that's exactly, that is exactly what I'm like. Uh, as a child, I used to go around the garden in anti-clockwise fashion and just think of all sorts of things. I used to imagine what the garden may have been like millions of years ago. Before <laughs> you know, all these things. And my parents used to laugh at me because I just used to go round and round and round for hours. And well, I don't go around my garden for hours anymore because my current garden is so small, I'd get incredibly bored. But I do sit sometimes just on my sofa for a few minutes and just wonder, let my mind wander off and probably think about anything. Anything that comes into my mind, I'll ponder. And, and yes, <laughs> that, that is me indeed. And in your early days of your career, did you find that that was uh, a bit challenging because you were always off thinking about the, the next exciting thing, the next big thing, or how to do something bigger and better? I think I always do that. I'm always wondering whether or not I should be where I am and whether I should be doing something else. That probably came about because I was told by many people that I could do this and I could do that and I could do the other. So I do not so much these days. I'm, I'm pretty content probably with old age. That's what, that's what happens. But I do sometimes think, Oh, I wonder if I should have done this or I should have done that. What would have happened if perhaps everybody does though? Well, it sounds like you've certainly uh, carved out a niche for yourself. You have put together some very interesting culinary tours. You're working with, I think, Greg Wallace on some of the, the culinary tours that you put together. Yes, 
Greg Wallace, who is a presenter on British TV, approached us with the idea of putting together some holidays that focus on food. I wasn't quite sure what he wanted, but I put together food tours as I like to do them. And these are exploratory in the sense that they will not just go to a place but and allow people to eat and drink, because obviously we do that too. But it will give them the opportunity to understand something about the environment in which these foods have arisen, why certain traditions are what they are, and how various factors such as vegetation, climate, politics, religion, may have actually influenced what people eat in a certain place. They rather like them, and I have done many tours like this uh, in the past few years, and people really, really do enjoy them because it gives them an insight into what food is all about. Rosetta, would you be able to share a little more about the type of tour you offer and give us an example so you can make it come alive for our audience? For example, I noticed that you offer tours in Sicily, and how does what you offer differ from other food tours? Well, the tours to Sicily, for instance, most people, when they think of Sicily, they think, they think of the sun, lovely beaches, Greek temples, that sort of thing, which is true. That's, Sicily has a lot of that indeed. But it also has a lot of hardworking people, people who in the past have had to eke out a living from in very harsh conditions. Parts of Sicily are prone to earthquakes and landslides and people still carried on living there, doing the best they could with what they had. And from this, they have managed to create some incredibly interesting dishes. And they, the, the island of Sicily has been invaded by people from all directions. We're looking at from northern Africa, we're looking at Greece, we're looking at Spain, we're looking at the Normans even, and everybody has brought in something which has contributed to the variety of dishes and food and ingredients that Sicily has today. And this is something that you wouldn't necessarily know unless somebody showed you examples of where these things are. Somebody told you something about the history and showed you the places that are affected by these factors. If you just go and eat something and drink something, you might not know why it is. You just eat and drink it and enjoy it. Rosetta, it sounds like you tie in archaeology throughout your tours. Um, can you share a little bit more about how that came about? Yes. I joined Specialist Journeys, which is the company I work for at the moment, 22 years ago. At the time, there wasn't a specialist journeys. There was a company called Andante Travels, which still exists today. And this company offered exclusively archaeological tours. After a couple of years of working there, the director came to me and said, just really as, 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 a, as a, in a casual conversation, asked me if the area I came from in Italy had anything of archaeological interest. To which I replied laughing, saying, not really, but I know that they've got a lot of lovely mushrooms and ham. <laughs> so she said, well, why don't we do a tour there? 
And I thought, well, as this is an archaeological company, wouldn't it be a bit odd if we just offered a food tour among all the other wonderful archaeological itineraries that you have? How about combining it with a bit of archaeology if I can get somebody interested enough in this area where there are just fragments of this and fragments of that, we might be able to put something together. And that's how it happened. I did just that with a colleague of mine who's a, uh, an archaeologist and we came up with an itinerary that sold out straight away. How much in advance do people typically need to book these tours with you? It really does depend the sooner they book, the better it is for us because we get a better idea of just how many people we need to confirm to the various places we go to visit. From my point of view, I need to secure all the visits that we've got before I publish anything. And some of them are very, very difficult to actually get in touch with or even confirm, either because they have very limited capacity or they simply don't take visits and I have to beg them on my knees to, to let us come along and, and watch them make whatever they're making. You know, the sooner the better, because the more people book, the more I can say, oh, we're definitely going here, we're definitely going there. Sometimes I have to change venues, sadly, because they might want a minimum number of people or they might want a reply straight away, which I can't give them. And then I lose it, so I need to go somewhere else. But I always do find a solution, though. Rosetta, you, you were saying that you were a really shy person when you were younger and perhaps still are today. How has that factored into how you are as a business person today? I'm a very bad business person. <laughs> I'm creative, but if I were to do my own marketing and selling, I'm not so sure how successful I would be. I do rely on other people to do that part for me. Although I'm quite happy to talk about things and I have very often convinced people to do things as a result of speaking with them, I'm not a great business person. I've never actually, well, I have run my own business many years ago, but my heart wasn't in it and I didn't do a great job. Rosetta, can you tell us a little bit about how you found out that you were shy and what you did to overcome that in the past? I knew I was shy because unless I was with my family, who I knew well, everybody else used to frighten me to the extent that I couldn't, I, I really just couldn't talk to other people. I would blush at the thought of having to ask somebody the simplest things. And this terror accompanied me right up to the age of about 16 or 17, when I realized that in order to go out there and be an adult and look for work and do things, I'd have to do something about it. I forced myself to do things that I knew I, I, I would be terrified to do. It took me ages. I probably was in my mid-30s by the time I actually managed to walk into a room and make an announcement or um, just go down the street and ask for directions. I, I really don't know why I was so shy because I have a sister who I have to say is completely different. So it wasn't because of the way I was brought up. But I did manage in the end, I told myself that I, I really need to get out of this. And when an opportunity came up to do something like teaching, which involved 
standing up in front of the class and being judged by assessors, I just took it on board, went ahead, did it. I was dying as I was doing it, but I survived it. And I said to myself, well, look, I've survived it. I passed the test. I'm okay. If I can do this, I can do other things too. To others who might be struggling with shyness, what advice do you have for them? It's very important to realize that you will always be shy because that's your nature, but that you have to overcome it and you need to do things that will push you into a position that means that you really do have to do things that might be difficult because if you never do it, you will never get out of that cocoon that you're in and you will not get very far it'll hold you back some people are held back by that and really lead terribly solitary lives so if you don't want to end up like that you really do need to try and do something whatever it is it needn't be a massive step you don't need to stand up in front of a massive crowd of people at a congress or anything but just simple little things like asking a group of people for some advice or just going into the shop and just shouting across the shop excuse me have you got any flour or sugar or anything like that that's the sort of thing i wouldn't have been able to do I wouldn't have been able to go into the shop and raise my voice so that everybody else could hear me. So yeah, little little bits at a time, little steps at a time until you realize that actually you can do things. Would well, you tell people you were shy to have them help you through the process? I have done. I have done, yes. I have told people, I'm very shy. I don't think I can do this. Uh, would you mind doing part of it for me or coming with me uh, yes I have done I don't I tend not to do that so much anymore now but I know that I have done yes and there's nothing wrong in admitting it if people don't know you are shy they will think there's something wrong with you I mean I suppose there is but they will think that you're just being awkward you don't want to do things but if you are honest and upfront about it and say look you know this is really terrifying me I know it's silly but I just can't do it without some sort of support, then they will be more understanding. Well, Rosetta, clearly you've overcome your shyness and you're an accomplished businesswoman these days. You've been in the food tourism industry for a couple of decades at least. What do you see as a major concern in our industry today? What, what concerns you the most? I think the problem lies mainly with overpopularity of food. When things become fashionable, everybody wants it. And if something is quite difficult to produce or rare, the producers have to find ways of satisfying the market. And very often you will get alternatives created, which may be equally as good, but may not be equally as good and may indeed differ widely from the original product. I suppose I could give you an example of that. Um, balsamic vinegar is a very good example. Everybody talks about balsamic vinegar, but the actual traditional product is something that hardly anybody has ever come across. That is the only thing, well, there are probably many other, many other problems too, but that is one thing that I find slightly problematic. In perhaps we should be satisfied in understanding that when there is no more, 
there is no more and you have to wait till next year or to the next time it's produced. We've seemed to have entered into an era where everything must be available all the time. And a very good example of that is the fruit and vegetables that we buy in the shops. Many people complain about tomatoes not tasting of anything and apples not being as sweet as they used to be. And that is because we can't wait for them to be in season. We have to have them there in front of us at a click of a finger when we want them. So, of course, supermarkets, shops have to import them because if we can't grow them at certain times of year, they have to come from elsewhere. But the long journeys, of course, force these products to be picked way in advance, way before they're ripe, and very often they taste of absolutely nothing. You know, what you are talking about also ties into this notion of over-tourism, which is something that is of great concern to our food tourism industry. And the example that I often use is the cruise ship passengers who disembark in Barcelona and look forward to trying paella, which is not even native to Catalonia. So uh, what are your thoughts on over-tourism and what can we do about it? <sighs> yes, it's, it's a bit of a... <laughs> catch-22 situation because on the one hand you encourage tourism on the other hand you by doing so you are overcrowding places and damaging what was originally there I think we need to educate people and I think this is where I this is what I tried to do you don't go to Italy to expect spaghetti bolognese because it doesn't exist in Italy but what we do we go to Italy we expect spaghetti bolognese and the local people will prepare it for us so as to keep our business so in that respect it does damage what the area was originally famous for and so your example of people getting off at, at barcelona in in hordes looking for paella or whatever else they think comes from barcelona does in fact diminish the the character of the place because you're no longer going to Barcelona for what Barcelona is, you're going there for what you want or what you think it should be. And that is very, very true for, for all tourism when it comes to food and perhaps many other things too. Rosetta, can you talk a little bit about authenticity with food tourism? For instance, how you compare Italian food versus Italian-American food? I probably know more about Anglo-Italian food than I do Italian-American food. However, I wouldn't call it a problem. I would call it an evolution of Italian food. As food travels, it needs to use what it can find locally. And so it changes slightly. The wheat might be different. The climate might be different. So you get different ingredients to make your original dish with. With American food, I can quote things like pizza and spaghetti bolognese. You do have spaghetti bolognese, I believe. And chicken parmesan. Yes, which I've never heard of. Um, <laughs> one of the things about immigration from Italy was that initially it was mostly men who emigrated and once they had settled and thought that that's fine i think i'll bring my family over then the women and the children would follow afterwards men 
in Italy, at least years ago, were absolutely rubbish at cooking, had no idea how to do that because they depended on their mothers to do that. So once they had gone abroad, they would like to recreate some of those lovely dishes that mama used to cook for them, but they would do it their way, the way they thought it should be done or could be done. That's why I think we have what we have today. We have all these different sort of concoctions that probably bear no resemblance to the, the original recipe. That doesn't make it worse. But what does happen is that you get the impression that chicken parmesan should be available everywhere in Italy. You get the impression that pizza with pineapple should be available everywhere in Italy. And when you go to Italy, it's not. And sometimes people are actually very disappointed. How do you overcome that? How do you educate people? Well, the way I do it is just by giving a lecture, if you want, giving talks about exactly the way I've just spoken to you, really, to, to help them help people understand why it is that place that it originated from continues to make it the original way and why having traveled as a dish and as a recipe, it has changed. It has changed because of the circumstances and the places that it finds itself in. And that way, hopefully, people will appreciate and see the, the, how interesting it is that something can change so dramatically, sometimes, you know, hugely from what the original dish was actually like. And perhaps try it and make comparisons and, and hopefully go back home and say, well, you know, when I went over there, I realized that spaghetti bolognese doesn't actually exist, but they do do this, which is very similar. It's a great talking point. That was a very eloquent explanation of how cuisines can differ. And I guess really the traveler has to keep an open mind. And when you go to Italy, for example, not expect the things that we have at home, the chicken parmesan or the pizza or whatever, and just eat what you find. And I think maybe it's the act of travel itself is the best education in terms of helping people to understand what is truly authentic versus what is that maybe more modern fusion creation. I think so. It depends what you're traveling for. If you're traveling to Italy just to see the sights and you're really not interested in, in food, then that argument sort of goes out of the window a bit. But if you are interested in understanding something about the culture, then you do need to have an open mind and not be afraid of trying things that may not look good, may not look very appetizing, may have ingredients that you think, my goodness, this is harmful. We're not supposed to be eating this, for instance, lard, pig skin, that sort of stuff. Give it a go. I mean, unless, of course, you have allergies of some sort or you don't eat meat for ethical reasons, then there should be no reason as to why you shouldn't try new things and just just experience it. You might even like it. And, and as you go around, you'll see how things change. In Italy in particular, things really do change from one village to the next sometimes you don't have to travel very far three or four kilometers which would be two or three miles and they might make the same dish but in a completely different way and it's, it's quite nice to experience that and and to sort of log it in your mind that you know I went to such and such a place I had never eaten uh, an apple cake made that way it was really interesting 
I think that's a challenge that a lot of food travelers have as well in that they think about a national cuisine, but the really they should be thinking about regional cuisines. I mean, we, we think about Italian food or Greek food or Spanish food, but those countries have 15, 20 different cuisines at least. It becomes almost overwhelming when you start to think about all the different regional varieties that are available. Well, that is one of the reasons why my tours focus on small areas. Because if you get a tour which explores too big a region, you're, en- you're going to end up really getting very confused. The cuisine in Italy is really, as you say, it's not one cuisine, it's several, it's probably hundreds of cuisines. And this is because Italy as a country has only been existing for 150 years. Before that, it was fragmented into very small little duchies and kingdoms and all sorts of things with rulers from all over the world. So you really had influences that came in from everywhere. The geography of Italy also lends itself to producing different ways of life and because of this people will cook differently because it depends on what activities they carry out. We look at the coastline, there'll be a lot of fresh fish on the coast, but you only have to travel inwards by a mile or two to find that fish is no longer on the table. And that's because in the old days, before refrigeration was invented, it wouldn't take long for the fish to go off. So the last thing you wanted was to eat a fish that had taken two hours to get to you. You would eat something else. <laughs> That's just an example of, of, of things. So yes, Italy does have millions of cuisines and it is quite nice to actually call those cuisines by the names that they have. So I like to say Emilian cuisine or Veneto cuisine or Roman cuisine because they are very different. Italian cuisine as a generic term is actually quite difficult to define, to be honest. Rosetta, I couldn't agree with you more. You're speaking of Italy, but you know, that's one of my pet peeves with Indian food. We have thousands of cuisines and yet North Indian cuisine, you know, as you know it, naan and butter chicken masala, what everybody thinks of when they think of Indian food. And that's because, you know, the immigrants who came here were from the North, were business people, they started restaurants, but there's just a variety of different cuisines that you could explore. And it just makes it so much more worthwhile to look into each region and understand the cuisine of each region, which is also something that will help with over tourism is when you start to advertise regions rather than the country itself. Well, I would have thought that that was a draw to going on a food tour because if I were to go to India, now India is a huge country, so I wouldn't expect to to see it all. You know, I'd have to stay in India for several years to do that. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to go over there and be surprised by the variety of food that there is and how certain things I just have never eaten and certain things that I will never see back home. Because even in the UK, Indian cuisine is pretty standard and I've been told that it's actually not Indian cuisine because you some of the things you can't even get in India. I agree with you you know I mean this is what makes it makes it exciting that you know to discover all these other things that there are which we don't have at home and I should imagine that if I were to go to the States and spend a bit of time there, traveling around from one area to the other, I would might find the same sort of thing happening where people have different favorites, different dishes that perhaps on the East Coast is more popular than it is on the West. I might be wrong, but I should imagine that's the case. 
No, you're absolutely right. New England clam chowder that is best in New England that you may or may not find on the West Coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, well, when we talk about American cuisine over here, the immediate thought is the McDonald's burger. You know, that everybody in America eats massive steaks and, and burgers. Well, they probably do, but we do over here too. Of course, there are other things. Just We just don't see them here. Turning the conversation uh, around more to your personal uh, life, Rosetta, if you could give yourself a single piece of advice to the younger version of you, what would it be? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I was really stubborn. I still am. But as, as a youngster, I wouldn't listen to anybody. So I suppose giving myself advice would be a, ba- a waste of time. However, I would say, don't worry so much. Don't worry so much. People are not observing and criticizing and judging everything you do. Don't do anything that's bad, harmful, and go along the path you want to take and do your best in everything that you do. That's what I would say to myself. Great words to live by. (laughs) (laughs) And you had mentioned that a quote that you love is, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Could you expand why you love that quote? Because I think it's so very true. We humans, we're constantly striving to improve things and progress, as we like to call it, invent things to make life easier for ourselves. But I'm just wondering whether we really have, whether we're still struggling to survive just like humans did millions of years ago. I don't think much has actually changed. We still have to work hard to to eat and to carry on with life just as humans always have done. So I think that's why I like that, that quote. Well, cuisine certainly changes. We were just talking about the the expectations of Americans and Italian food. So that's, I guess, one thing that can continue to evolve. Oh, yes, things do change. They, They do, but we're still eating. We still have to eat. Whether we continue eating a fried egg for centuries on end, or we scramble it, yes, the egg has changed, but we still have to eat. (laughs) So from that point of view, nothing has changed. From the point of view of what we eat, yes, that's absolutely true. And I think that's what makes life so interesting, the fact that certain basic things we cannot change, you know, life and death, that's it. You know, that's that's the rule, isn't it? We're born and then we die. And in between, we do all sorts of exciting things just to make our life a little bit more interesting. Mm. And food is part of it. I think if we were to eat that fried egg every day, we would get really fed up of it. So the idea of turning it into something else is what makes us tick. What legacy do you hope to leave behind? I hope that people will be more understanding of other cultures and as a result, more tolerant and more accepting of the differences that there are in the world. That's absolutely something I totally understand. And in many ways, food can convey that exact phenomena. We look at what we call gastro diplomacy, and that is very much getting to know other people and cultures through their food. So in in some ways, food could help to convey that legacy that you'd like to leave. I think so. And the good thing about food is that very often it involves a community. It means that you get together with other people around a table and you discuss. So while you're eating, you're actually getting to know the people who are sitting around you and eating with you. So it opens up the doors for many things. I 
don't like eating on my own. I find it terribly boring. I, it takes me five seconds to eat if I'm on my own. But if I've got somebody else with me and I'm eating the same thing, I can draw this out for an hour or two. But that's because I'm having a conversation with this person. Mm. And that's where I think food is a great excuse for people to get together and explore each other. Do you have a favorite food travel memory? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, there are so many. I do remember the cashew and pea curry that I had in Sri Lanka. I, I keep dreaming of it, but it might have been just made for tourists. I don't know, but it was just such a wonderful dish that I, I haven't got it out of my mind. Perhaps I should look it up. I never have thought of that, of looking it up to see whether it's actually authentic or not. But I do remember that, yes. So what's next for you, Rosetta? Maybe writing a book? A lot of people have said that, but I think I'm a bit of a rubbish writer. I ought to get somebody who knows how to put their words together a bit better than I do. But perhaps I should. I'd like to write a book. I, I have thought about it. I would like to write a book about how people eat around the world rather than what they eat. For instance, whether people eat with their hands, whether they sit around a round table, whether they eat four times a day or just once a day, whether they eat at four o'clock in the evening or at nine o'clock in the evening as they do in Spain and sort of look into the reasons for that. Yeah, I might do that. So that's your, your next project then. <laughs> I suppose it is now. <laughs> Rosetta, what do you do in your free time? I sing in a choir. I'm studying French at the moment because I used to speak it fluently when I was at school and haven't used it since. So I've got to revive it. And I thought, well, I must do this. But I love going to concerts. I love going to the opera. I love traveling just, just for the sake of traveling. Sometimes I get into my car and just drive off for hours on end just to see where it might take me. And I, I just love everywhere. So you can I, think. You like to drive so you can think, right? Oh, you know, I haven't thought of that, but you're <laughs> right you're absolutely right i'm the that's same why. way <laughs> i do it too that's why i do it <laughs> no, it's, so, it's a great yes. place to think absolutely behind the wheel of a car <laughs> it is isn't it? and nobody can bother you 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 mm. just you just get on with it and you go where you like i do like the arts i occasionally paint something but very very occasionally and often don't like what I've come up with I used to play the piano every now and again I go to it and play a few easy pieces so yeah and of course I like to entertain my friends I do cook I'm quite a good cook uh, I've had a few disasters but generally it comes <laughs> out all right <laughs> yes you a great dinner party I love dinner parties, not because I like to show off. I just like to have people around me and I just enjoy being in the kitchen and creating something. And hopefully people like it too. I've, I've very rarely have I had somebody say, I don't like this. In fact, I don't ever recall any instance. I might have not been satisfied with it, but nobody has ever said so. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with, Rosetta, as we come to the end of our interview? The world is a lovely place. Let's just enjoy it. And protect it. And, and protect, protect it. it. Yeah. Indeed. Rosetta, it's been a true pleasure. You have a lot of knowledge. You have a lot of passion. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time today to share those with our listeners. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening today. The Eat Well, Travel Better podcast is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association, the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. We empower local communities and businesses with the food and beverage tourism knowledge and tools needed to reach new consumers and gain a competitive edge. Founded in 2003, every year we shepherd a community of almost 100,000 professionals in over 100 countries. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And you can learn more about us, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our family at worldfoodtravel.org. Until next time, eat well and travel better. 